This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Michael Scherer. Typee by Herman Melville. Chapter 32 From the time of my casual encounter with Karki the artist, my life was one of absolute wretchedness. Not a day passed, but I was persecuted by the solicitations of some of the natives to subject myself to the odious operation of tattooing. Their importunities drove me half wild, for I felt how easily they might work their will upon me regarding this or anything else which they took into their heads. Still, however, the behavior of the islanders towards me was as kind as ever. Fayaway was quite as engaging, Kori Kori as devoted, and Mahavi the king, just as gracious and condescending as before. But I had now been three months in their valley, as nearly as I could estimate. I had grown familiar with the narrow limits to which my wanderings had been confined, and I began bitterly to feel the state of captivity in which I was held. There was no one with whom I could freely converse, no one to whom I could communicate my thoughts, no one who could sympathize with my sufferings. A thousand times I thought how much more endurable would have been my lot had Toby still been with me. But I was left alone, and the thought was terrible to me. Still, despite my griefs, I did all in my power to appear composed and cheerful, well knowing that by manifesting any uneasiness, or any desire to escape, I should only frustrate my object. It was during the period I was in this unhappy frame of mind that the painful malady under which I had been laboring, after having almost completely subsided, began again to show itself, and with symptoms as violent as ever. This added calamity nearly unmanned me. The recurrence of the complaint proved that without powerful remedial applications, all hope of cure was futile, and when I reflected that just beyond the elevations which bound me in was the medical relief I needed, and that although so near, it was impossible for me to avail myself of it, the thought was misery. In this wretched situation, every circumstance which evinced the savage nature of the beings at whose mercy I was, augmented the fearful apprehensions that consumed me. An occurrence which happened about this time affected me most powerfully. I have already mentioned that from the ridge-pole of Marheo's house were suspended a number of packages enveloped in tapa, Many of these I had often seen in the hands of the natives, and their contents had been examined in my presence. But there were three packages, hanging very nearly over the place where I lay, which from their remarkable appearance had often excited my curiosity. Several times I had asked Kori Kori to show me their contents, but my servitor, who in almost every other particular had acceded to my wishes, always refused to gratify me in this. One day... Returning unexpectedly from the tea, my arrival seemed to throw the inmates of the house into the greatest confusion. They were seated together on the mats, and by the lines which extended from the roof to the floor, I immediately perceived that the mysterious packages were for some purpose or other under inspection. The evident alarm the savages betrayed filled me with forebodings of evil, and with an uncontrollable desire to penetrate the secret so jealously guarded. Despite the efforts of Marheyo and Kori Kori to restrain me, I forced my way into the midst of the circle, 
and just caught a glimpse of three human heads, which others of the party were hurriedly enveloping in the coverings from which they had been taken. One of the three I distinctly saw. It was in a state of perfect preservation, and from the slight glimpse I had of it, seemed to have been subjected to some smoking operation which had reduced it to the dry, hard, and mummy-like appearance it presented. Two long scalp-locks were twisted up into balls upon the crown of the head, in the same way that the individual had worn them during life. The sunken cheeks were rendered yet more ghastly by the rows of glistening teeth which protruded from between the lips, while the sockets of the eyes, filled with oval bits of mother-of-pearl shell, with a black spot in the center, heightened the hideousness of its aspect. Two of the three were heads of the islanders, but the third, to my horror, was that of a white man. Although it had been quickly removed from my sight, still the glimpse I had of it was enough to convince me that I could not be mistaken. Gracious God, what dreadful thoughts entered my mind! In solving this mystery, perhaps I had solved another, and the fate of my lost companion might be revealed in the shocking spectacle I had just witnessed. I longed to have torn off the folds of cloth, and satisfied the awful doubts under which I labored. But before I had recovered from the consternation into which I had been thrown, the fatal packages were hoisted aloft, and once more swung over my head. The natives now gathered round me tumultuously, and labored to convince me that what I had just seen were the heads of three Hapar warriors, who had been slain in battle. This glaring falsehood added to my alarm, and it was not until I reflected that I had observed the packages swinging from their elevation before Toby's disappearance that I could at all recover my composure. But although this horrible apprehension had been dispelled, I had discovered enough to fill me, in my present state of mind, with the most bitter reflections. It was plain that I had seen the last relic of some unfortunate wretch, who must have been massacred on the beach by the savages, in one of those perilous trading adventures which I have before described. It was not, however, alone the murder of the stranger that overcame me with gloom. I shuddered at the idea of the subsequent fate his inanimate body might have met with. Was the same doom reserved for me? Was I destined to perish like him, like him perhaps to be devoured, and my head to be preserved as a fearful memento of the event? My imagination ran riot in these horrid speculations, and I felt certain that the worst possible evils would befall me. But whatever were my misgivings, I studiously concealed them from the islanders, as well as the full extent of the discovery I had made. Although the assurances which the Taipees had often given me, that they never eat human flesh, had not convinced me that such was the case, yet having been so long a time in the valley without witnessing anything which indicated the existence of the practice, I began to hope that it was an event of very rare occurrence and that I should be spared the horror of witnessing it during my stay among them. But alas, these hopes were soon destroyed. It is a singular fact that in all our accounts of cannibal tribes we have seldom received the testimony of an eyewitness to the revolting practice. The horrible conclusion has almost always been derived either from the second-hand evidence of Europeans, or else from the admissions of the savages themselves 
after they have in some degree become civilized. The Polynesians are aware of the detestation in which Europeans hold this custom, and therefore invariably deny its existence, and, with the craft peculiar to savages, endeavor to conceal every trace of it. The excessive unwillingness betrayed by the Sandwich Islanders, even at the present day, to allude to the unhappy fate of Cook, has been often remarked, and so well have they succeeded in covering that event with mystery, that to this very hour, despite all that has been said and written on the subject, it still remains doubtful whether they wreaked upon his murdered body the vengeance they sometimes inflicted upon their enemies. At Karakakova, the scene of that tragedy, a strip of ship's copper nailed against an upright post in the ground used to inform the traveller that beneath reposed the remains of the great circumnavigator. But I am strongly inclined to believe not only that the corpse was refused Christian burial, but that the heart which was brought to Vancouver some time after the event, and which the Hawaiians stoutly maintained was that of Captain Cook, was no such thing, and that the whole affair was a piece of imposture which was sought to be palmed off upon the credulous Englishman. A few years since, there was living on the island of Maui, one of the sandwich group, an old chief, who, actuated by a morbid desire for notoriety, gave himself out among the foreign residents of the place as the living tomb of Captain Cook's big toe, affirming that at the cannibal entertainment which ensued after the lamented Britain's death, that particular portion of his body had fallen to his share. His indignant countrymen actually caused him to be prosecuted in the native courts, on a charge nearly equivalent to what we term defamation of character. But the old fellow persisting in his assertion, and no invalidating proof being adduced, the plaintiffs were cast in the suit, and the cannibal reputation of the defendant fully established. This result was the making of his fortune. Ever afterwards he was in the habit of giving very profitable audiences to all curious travellers who were desirous of beholding the man who had eaten the great navigator's great toe. About a week after my discovery of the contents of the mysterious packages, I happened to be at the tea when another war alarm was sounded, and the natives, rushing to their arms, sallied out to resist a second incursion of the Hapar invaders. The same scene was again repeated, only that on this occasion I heard at least fifteen reports of muskets from the mountains during the time that the skirmish lasted. An hour or two after its termination, loud paeans chanted through the valley announced the approach of the victors. I stood with Kori Kori leaning against the railing of the pee-pee awaiting their advance, when a tumultuous crowd of islanders emerged with wild clamors from the neighboring groves. In the midst of them marched four men, one preceding the other at regular intervals of eight or ten feet, with poles of a corresponding length, extended from shoulder to shoulder, to which were lashed with thongs of bark, three long, narrow bundles, carefully wrapped in ample coverings of freshly plucked palm leaves, tacked together with slivers of bamboo. Here and there upon these green winding sheets might be seen the stains of blood, while the warriors who carried the frightful burdens displayed upon their naked limbs similar sanguinary marks. The shaven head of the foremost had a deep gash upon it, and the clotted gore which had flowed from the wound remained in dry patches around it. 
This savage seemed to be sinking under the weight he bore. The bright tattooing upon his body was covered with blood and dust. His inflamed eyes rolled in their sockets, and his whole appearance denoted extraordinary suffering and exertion. Yet sustained by some powerful impulse, he continued to advance, while the throng around him with wild cheers sought to encourage him. The other three men were marked about the arms and breasts with several slight wounds, which they somewhat ostentatiously displayed. These four individuals, having been the most active in the late encounter, claimed the honor of bearing the bodies of their slain enemies to the tea. Such was the conclusion I drew from my own observations, and as far as I could understand, from the explanation which Cory Cory gave me. The royal Mahavi walked by the side of these heroes. He carried in one hand a musket, from the barrel of which was suspended a small canvas pouch of powder, and in the other he grasped a short javelin, which he held before him and regarded with fierce exultation. This javelin he had wrested from a celebrated champion of the Hapars, who had ignominiously fled, and was pursued by his foe beyond the summit of the mountain. When within a short distance of the tee, the warrior with the wounded head, who proved to be Narmany, tottered forward to her three steps, and fell helplessly to the ground, but not before another had caught the end of the pole from his shoulder, and placed it upon his own. The excited throng of islanders, who surrounded the person of the king and the dead bodies of the enemy, approached the spot where I stood, brandishing their rude implements of warfare, many of which were bruised and broken, and uttering continual shouts of triumph. When the crowd drew up opposite the tee, I set myself to watch their proceedings most attentively, but scarcely had they halted when my servitor, who had left my side for an instant, touched my arm and proposed our returning to Marheyo's house. To this I objected, but to my surprise Cory Cory reiterated his request, and with an unusual vehemence of manner. Still, however, I refused to comply, and was retreating before him, as in his importunity he pressed upon me, when I felt a heavy hand laid upon my shoulder, and turning round, encountered the bulky form of Mau Mau, a one-eyed chief, who had just detached himself from the crowd below, and had mounted the rear of the peepee upon which we stood. His cheek had been pierced by the point of a spear, and the wound imparted a still more frightful expression to his hideously tattooed face, already deformed by the loss of an eye. The warrior, without uttering a syllable, pointed fiercely in the direction of Marheyo's house, while Cory Cory, at the same time presenting his back, desired me to mount. I declined this offer, but intimated my willingness to withdraw, and moved slowly along the piazza, wondering what could be the cause of this unusual treatment. A few minutes' consideration convinced me that the savages were about to celebrate some hideous rite in connection with their peculiar customs, and at which they were determined I should not be present. I descended from the pipi, and attended by Cory Cory, who on this occasion did not show his usual commiseration for my lameness, but seemed only anxious to hurry me on, walked away from the place. As I passed through the noisy throng, which by this time completely environed the tea, I looked with fearful curiosity at the three packages, which now were deposited upon the ground. But although I had no doubt as to their contents, still their thick coverings prevented my actually detecting the form of a human body. 
The next morning, shortly after sunrise, the same thundering sounds which had awakened me from sleep on the second day of the Feast of Calabashes assured me that the savages were on the eve of celebrating another, and as I fully believed, a horrible solemnity. All the inmates of the house, with the exception of Marheyo, his son, and Tinor, after assuming their gala dresses, departed in the direction of the taboo groves. Although I did not anticipate a compliance with my request, still, with a view of testing the truth of my suspicions, I proposed to Kori Kori that according to our usual custom in the morning, we should take a stroll to the tea. He positively refused, and when I renewed the request, he evinced his determination to prevent my going there, and, to divert my mind from the subject, he offered to accompany me to the stream. We accordingly went and bathed. On our coming back to the house, I was surprised to find that all its inmates had returned, and were lounging upon the mats as usual, although the drums still sounded from the groves. The rest of the day I spent with Kori Kori and Fayaway, wandering about a part of the valley situated in an opposite direction from the tea, and whenever I so much as looked towards that building, although it was hidden from view by intervening trees, and at the distance of more than a mile, my attendant would exclaim, Taboo! Taboo! At the various houses where we stopped, I found many of the inhabitants reclining at their ease, or pursuing some light occupation, as if nothing unusual were going forward. But amongst them all, I did not perceive a single chief or warrior. When I asked several of the people why they were not at the hula hula, the feast, they uniformly answered the question in a manner which implied that it was not intended for them, but for Mahavi, Narmany, Mau Mau, Kolar, Womanu, Kalau, running over, in their desire to make me comprehend their meaning, the names of all the principal chiefs. Everything, in short, strengthened my suspicions with regard to the nature of the festival they were now celebrating, and which amounted almost to a certainty. While in Nukahiva, I had frequently been informed that the whole tribe were never present at these cannibal banquets, but the chiefs and priests only, and everything I now observed agreed with the account. The sound of the drums continued without intermission the whole day, and falling continually upon my ear, caused me a sensation of horror which I am unable to describe. On the following day, hearing none of those noisy indications of revelry, I concluded that the inhuman feast was terminated, and feeling a kind of morbid curiosity to discover whether the tea might furnish any evidence of what had taken place there, I proposed to Kori Kori to walk there. To this proposition, he replied by pointing with his finger to the newly risen sun, and then up to the zenith, intimating that our visit must be deferred until noon. Shortly after that hour, we accordingly proceeded to the taboo groves, and as soon as we entered their precincts, I looked fearfully round in quest of some memorial of the scenes which had so lately been acted there. But everything appeared as usual. On reaching the tea, we found Mahavi and a few chiefs reclining on the mats, who gave me as friendly a reception as ever. No allusions of any kind were made by them to the recent events, and I refrained, for obvious reasons, from referring to them myself. After staying a short time, I took my leave. In passing along the piazza, previously to descending from the pee-pee, I observed a curiously carved vessel of wood, 
of considerable size, with a cover placed over it of the same material, and which resembled in shape a small canoe. It was surrounded by a low railing of bamboos, the top of which was scarcely a foot from the ground. As the vessel had been placed in its present position since my last visit, I at once concluded that it must have some connection with the recent festival, and, prompted by a curiosity I could not repress, in passing it I raised one end of the cover. At the same moment, the chiefs, perceiving my design, loudly ejaculated, Taboo! Taboo! But the slight glimpse sufficed. My eyes fell upon the disordered members of a human skeleton, the bones still fresh with moisture, and with particles of flesh clinging to them here and there. Cory Cory, who had been a little in advance of me, attracted by the exclamations of the chiefs, turned round in time to witness the expression of horror on my countenance. He now hurried towards me, pointing at the same time to the canoe and exclaiming rapidly, Puarki, Puarki! Pig, pig! I pretended to yield to the deception, and repeated the words after him several times, as though acquiescing in what he said. The other savages, either deceived by my conduct or unwilling to manifest their displeasure at what could not now be remedied, took no further notice of the occurrence, and I immediately left the tea. All that night I lay awake, revolving in my mind the fearful situation in which I was placed. The last horrid revelation had now been made, and the full sense of my condition rushed upon my mind with a force I had never before experienced. Where, thought I, desponding, is there the slightest prospect of escape? The only person who seemed to possess the ability to assist me was the stranger Marnu, but would he ever return to the valley? And if he did, should I be permitted to hold any communication with him? It seemed as if I were cut off from every source of hope, and that nothing remained but passively to await whatever fate was in store for me. A thousand times I endeavored to account for the mysterious conduct of the natives. For what conceivable purpose did they thus retain me a captive? What could be their object in treating me with such apparent kindness? And did it not cover some treacherous scheme? Or, if they had no other design than to hold me a prisoner, how should I be able to pass away my days in this narrow valley, deprived of all intercourse with civilized beings, and forever separated from friends and home? One only hope remained to me. The French could not long defer a visit to the bay, and if they should permanently locate any of their troops in the valley, the savages could not for any length of time conceal my existence from them. But what reason had I to suppose that I should be spared until such an event occurred, an event which might be postponed by a hundred different contingencies?'